Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, I want you to take your Bible out. We're going to look into it. Before we do, let me, uh, let me just tell you how I felt on Thursday. Lousy, that's how I felt. It had been a long and uh, challenging week, and I'm sure you've had those. That was the case for me last week. And if I were not leading the Thursday night Bible study, I could easily have given myself permission to stay home or run errands. I had to go to the hardware uh, or to uh, run to the bookstore. There was something I wanted to see there or to call one of my brothers. I'm overdue on that and see how they're doing. I, I could have done something else is my point, and I actually almost felt like doing something else until... We began to get into God's Word. On Thursday, we continued talking about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, and we spent the entire hour plus just dealing with the issue of how the Holy Spirit lets us, convinces us that God is our Father and He loves us. Now, it sounds simple to say that, but when you begin to really examine it as we did together last Thursday, I will tell you, I went home saying, I am so glad I was here because God refreshed my spirit, but more than that, He improved my attitude and just, and the next couple of days were just great, way different than the ones before, and I think it was because of that. So what I'm saying is, uh, on Thursday, make it a priority. If you're not sick, if you're not working, if you're not taking care of a sick relative, if you don't have to be out of town, why Bring your Bible. Bring your family. We have rangers and girls clubs as well for our kids. But, uh, but bring a willing spirit, willing to look into the Word of God. And I promise you, we're going to do that again this week. We're going to look into the ways that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, helps us as believers avoid what's wrong and helps us to see what's true. It's incredible how He does that by His power and by His Word. So I challenge you to do that on uh, Thursday. Make it a family night with your family. You know, I, uh, I am not the smartest guy in the world. I don't like to think I'm stupid, but I realize I'm probably not the smartest guy. But I do see things. And as I live, I pay attention to what I see. This last Tuesday in our men's group, and by the way, any men that, that uh, want to be a part of it, it's a valuable time for several men in our church, men from our church and a couple of other churches on Tuesday. And there's info in your bulletin on that as well. But in the men's group this last Tuesday, one of the men read out a passage that is very familiar to us. It's been made into plaques and crocheted, and it, maybe it hangs on your dining room wall or somewhere else in your house. It's a familiar verse from Joshua where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a declarative statement. It's meant to be an encouragement. It's a statement of faith. It's a, it's a statement of almost defiant faith. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's muscular. It's strong when it talks about faith. But as this friend began to read it out, it was on his heart, it brought him pain to say the words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
It brought him pain. This encouraging verse was painful to him because he said, he followed it up by saying after he read it, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. Because he explained, though he and his wife and and some of his kids serve the Lord, some of his grown kids that are still at home don't serve the Lord. One even claims to be an agnostic or an atheist, doesn't serve the Lord. And so he said, I'm a phony because my house is not serving the Lord. And it's supposed to be serving the Lord. Everybody. And so that makes me a phony. It makes me a hypocrite. And that's why he was disturbed over it. Well, several of the guys helped him to work through that. That's one of the nice things about a group like that. And showed him that really he is running a God-honoring household, even though everybody in it is not following Christ. Many people, I think, are carrying a terrible weight over things in their life that they cannot control. In this case, the faith or the lack of it of one of his sons was a terrible weight for him. Now, if we broaden it just a little bit and maybe catch more fish in a net that's bigger, I think we could address an issue that more of us struggle with than just that one. A lot of times we feel like we're hypocrites because we don't always live what we know is true. And there are times when we can be caught not behaving as a Christian ought to behave. Even though we say we are and we know what's right, we don't always do what's right, and we feel that we're a hypocrite. And you may have plenty of people in your life to reinforce that sentiment and maybe even to echo it out loud for you or beat you to the punch and let you know before you let yourself know that you're a hypocrite. There are people in our lives that won't let you forget that we don't always live what we believe. Well, I want to talk about that for a few minutes today and point out to you, firstly, that the Bible is way ahead of our critics. There's nothing easier than finding inconsistency in other people's lives. Being able to punch holes in other people's lives is easy to do. There are whole industries, by the way, that are built on that. That's what journalists, that's what analysts do all day long. In fact, that is basically the format of a lot of news programs. They have the guy in the hot seat. And they say, the moderator says, in nice, even tones, he's in control. So you're now saying this, but in October of 1998, you said this. And then they flash on the screen a much younger image of this now sweaty guy. He's hot under his dirty Dutch collar. And this guy is now saying on the screen the opposite of the position that he now holds. And then that switches back to the moderator who says, now what do you say to that? That's a cheap and easy method to find inconsistencies in somebody else's life. That's kind of childish, really. In fact, that's what children do. You'll remember, if you're a parent, the days when your kids said to you, yeah, but you said, is fish in a barrel easy for somebody to come to you and point out you're not a consistent Christian? Of course you are. You don't always live what you preach, and that would be true again. 
But the Bible, did you realize this? The Bible has beat them to it. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It already said that. Now, we use that verse, Romans 3.23, in leading people to Christ, at least the first half we do, for all have sinned. And that's true. We have all sinned. And I could get real language technical on you and point out that the way that sentence is constructed in the original, it means all have sinned, all will sin, all will always sin. It's continuous. It's continual. Of course we sin, and we always sin. Who's the second part of that sentence talking about, though? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who is the glory of God? Well, it's Christ, isn't it? Christ is the glory of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Before you came to Him, before He started living in you, which is the way the Bible describes it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what this life is, Christ in you. Paul will say in another place, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's what we're talking about here. Well, before that began to happen, did you fall short of Christ? Before He began to live in you? Well, of course you did. That's why you came to Him. Because you fell so far short. And now, same question. Well, we still fall short, don't we? Even after we come to Christ, even after He begins to live in us, we still fall short of the glory of God, Christ. So my bony-fingered friend isn't saying anything new in poking me in the chest and telling me what a rotten Christian I am. They're not saying anything new, are they? In my case, it's not just one person, it's several. But they're not saying anything new. The Bible is way ahead of our critics, is my point. As usual, the Bible already knows that we're not consistent. Let's deal with that serious charge that comes from other people sometimes. You're a hypocrite. Because you don't live always what you say you believe. Or, Or sometimes, maybe most often, maybe... Too often, it nags from the inside. It comes from inside, from yourself. So accused or self-accused, it still stings. What about hypocrite? Well, hypocrite is a very interesting word. Our English word is almost a direct rendering from the original, from the Greek, hypocrite. And that's a word that comes from the world of the theater, the Greek theater. Go back to your high school literature classes, Aristophanes, Sophocles, the birds, Oedipus the king. It comes from the Greek stage, Hippocrates. It was a person who carried different kinds of masks depending on what role he was going to have to play when he was on the platform. And you've seen them, the happy face, the sad face, comedy and tragedy. They would switch out the masks. And those people, those kind of actors were called hypocrites because they had two faces. So the word hypocrite coming from that theater world, it means two masks. It means pretender. It means to play a role, to play act, to disguise, to mask the truth. That's to be a hypocrite. Kind of interesting. The word shows up in the New Testament. In the Gospels, it's found only, only on the lips of Jesus. He's the only one who gets to call anybody a hypocrite. 
Jesus didn't condemn the Pharisees that he called hypocrites because they had a serious approach to the law and the rules, but he condemned them because they made a big deal out of the law and the rules for other people and then tried to evade the demands of the law upon themselves. That's why they were called hypocrites. Now, ultimately, think about it, and and let's use these Pharisees as a prime example. When you set out to intentionally lie with your life, to be a hypocrite, to pretend, to play a role, to play act, to disguise, to wear a mask, to be a hypocrite, when you set out to do that, you end up deluding yourself. You see, hypocrisy is so bad and so sad, really, because it is self-blinding. You're the one who ends up losing. You end up playing a straitjacket role that you can't get out of and not living the abundant life that God designed for you. That's the problem with hypocrisy. But it's easy to see hypocrisy. It's easy to see it when a politician lectures us on conserving fuel and then flies all over the country in a private jet. When, when he could get an airline ticket that would get him there just as well. It's easy to see. It's easy to see when a, when a famous president says, your president is not a crook, but our president is a crook. <laughs> you can see it in the Bible. David, and Abraham, and Aaron, and Saul, and Simon Peter, and Sarah, and Samson, they were all hypocrites at one time or another. They set out to intentionally disguise who they really were and to blind people and ended up blinding themselves. So secular or sacred, the real problem with hypocrisy is you start trying to fool everybody and you end up fooling only yourself, really. Isaiah says, talking about people that are fit that bill, He says, you're a people that honors me with your lip service. What a great phrase is lip service, huh? Lip service. You honor me with lip service. Your service is only with your lips. You honor me with lip service, but your hearts are far removed from me. Now back back to the friend in the men's group the other night. When he honored God in his household, but his son did not, he felt condemned, or or maybe he was condemned by other people because everybody in his home was not on the same place. They were not on the same plane as he and his wife who loved Christ. Now, was his intention to fool somebody? Clearly no. To play a phony role, to intentionally mislead, does that describe what he was doing or pretending or disguising what you're really after? You see, that's hypocrisy. To be a hypocrite, Isaiah says, you have to intentionally remove your heart far from God while at the same time pretending that you and God are tight. That's hypocrisy. You have to remove your heart from God. Christians are often accused It's a lazy accusation. Oh, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, I notice you go to the bank and it's full of hypocrites too. 
Or I don't go because it's full of hypocrites. That's a lazy accusation. But Christians are often accused, or they are self-accused, of being a hypocrite. The question, though, is did I intend to deceive, to disguise, or mask the truth? And answering that question tells you all you need to know, and it decides if the label sticks or not. Now, let me say this. If you are intentionally pretending to be more holy than you are, or you are with intention trying to let people think you are smarter or better than you are, if you're doing that intentionally, then none of what I'm saying really applies to you. If you want to appear to be a better Christian than you ever intend to be, then what you need to do is you need to start at this altar or find your closet of prayer and there say, my God, what a phony I am, and start there. There's one more thing. My point is that everybody that feels like a hypocrite isn't a hypocrite. And a lot of times people say, I'm a hypocrite and God can't use me. I saw an old movie one time of W.C. Fields, the comic. And he was doing a, a pool shooting scene. And it was a whole bunch of trick shots. And, and he had all of the balls on the table and he broke them. And then in real quick succession, he sunk them all with all kind of trick shots. He did that with a standard pool cue. And that, you were impressed. Who can do that? Well, then he laid aside his pool cue, and he picked up a pool cue that was curved. It had a bow in it. He set them all up again. He ran the table again, sunk every trick shot with the curved cue. Wow. And then he racks them up again, and then he brings out one that's like this. It's crooked. And he does it again. Now, if somebody had done it, with a regular stick, you would be amazed. But he's able to do it with a very irregular cue stick. That's what made it so phenomenal. You know, you may call yourself a hypocrite. You may feel like you are. Others may save you the trouble and tell you on their own. And, and then you feel defeated and you feel like, I can't do anything for God. But if we all waited Till we were perfect, God couldn't use anybody. Do you realize that? The greater miracle is that he does use the broken failures. He does use people that are messed up. God, you see, is always playing with a crooked cue stick. All that said, perfect Christians do exist. You know that. Now, you aren't perfect, and I'm not perfect, we don't need anybody else to tell us that we fail. We don't want to be, on the other hand, like the fellow who showed up in a prayer meeting and he stood to testify, and he stood up and he said, I want to thank God that this week I have been sinless and I have done nothing wrong, and I want to give God all the credit. Well, that was good as far as it went, but had you seen the expression on his wife's face, you would know something was wrong. It wasn't so. Only in his mind. But we don't want to be like that. But perfect Christians do exist, as a matter of fact. 
Let me, let me explain to you what happens. Paul's letter to the Philippians in the third chapter, he talks about it. He talks about one who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, by that same power by which he can bring everything to bear and everything reined in and everything under his control, by that same power, he says he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He will make us perfect. He will do that. There are Christians that are perfect. That's what happens, but here's how it happens. Why don't you turn with me to the letter to the 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. is all about how it happens. Along the way, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about our, our, our fallible bodies, our broken bodies, our sinful bodies. He says it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual or a glorified body. There are believers that are glorified. There are believers that are perfect. They're all dead. You know, unlike any other faith, Christianity is totally different. Unlike Hinduism, unlike Judaism, unlike Islam, or anything else you can name, even those faiths that are most concerned about the salvation of our eternal souls, there is none like Christianity where the goal isn't just to save your soul, but it's to redeem your body and your soul. And that's what happens when we're perfected. There are perfected Christians, but they're all gone now, you see. They're all dead. They're with Christ, and just like you, they're awaiting that perfect body that will complete the redemption of body and soul, that will cause them to be finally a complete person. We're all going to be perfect one day when He changes us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. In the 50th verse of 1 Corinthians 15, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable without corruption, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? And he wraps it up by saying, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you will be perfect someday body and soul. 
it will all be bought back. You'll have a body, the Word says, like His glorious body. Think for just a minute what that was like. Remember Jesus after He rose from the dead, what He was able to do. He could transport from place to place in an instant of time. He could be there and then not be there. And yet He was still physical because He invited them, touch, see if it isn't me. Put your hand there, put your hand there. He was physical. He had a glorified body, but that body was still material. But the things it could do, it could go through walls and doors without having to open them. You'll get a body just like His body. You see, we're not just concerned with salvation of the soul, but our bodies will be bought back as well. And the day is coming, the Bible says, when we'll get that. Look ahead with me. Look ahead. 1 John 3, 2, we're told we know that when Christ appears, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. In other words, you're going to see Him. And in that split second of recognition, it will be so powerful that this body will be changed from what it is to a body like His. Just one glimpse of Him will do that. When we see Him, we will be like Him. Can you imagine what spending an eternity in His presence will do and how we will change? We'll have that glorified body. I heard the other day about a guy who was a big, big, serious sports fan. Problem was, he couldn't always watch all the games and events that he wanted to watch, and so he had to record. Now, he did something a little different when he would play the game back again that he'd recorded, that different than most would do. He didn't start at the beginning of the game and watch it through. He would fast forward to the end to find out if his team won or lost. If they lost, he didn't watch it. If they won, he would go back to the beginning, go to the fridge, get some snacks and things to drink, set himself down in an easy chair, and enjoy that game to the fullest. And the reason he said he could enjoy it was, once he sat down knowing that his team would win, he could enjoy it no matter what was happening. No matter how bad it looked for his team, no matter how bad they were getting beat, he knew that in the end, his team won. And it's the same with you. It doesn't matter how bad things get. It doesn't matter as a believer how difficult, how broken, even how sick your body gets. Because in the end, listen to me, you win. You win. You get this glorified body. You get this rescued soul, and they're together. And on top of it all, you get Christ. When you see Him, you will be like Him because you'll see Him just as He is. <laughs> Not perfect today, but perfect someday. I want us to stand together. We're going to pray. And we're going to begin by just thanking God. We're going to just ask Him to accept our thanks, that that's where this thing is headed. So lift your hands. Lift your hands. And maybe even open your your mouth, and, and use your voice and just begin to say thank you. Thank you. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you that you save not just my soul. You, you don't just rescue my falling soul. Lord, as incredible as that is, you don't just cleanse me from the inside out. You don't just purge out all of the garbage that the enemy has dumped there. You don't just reverse all of the ugliness in my life. You don't just redeem me that way. Not just my soul, but the day will come when you will restore this body. And it will be perfect. Everything about it will be perfect. It will be exactly the way you've designed it, not the way the enemy designed to ruin it. But it will be designed like you did. Lord, it will be like your body. Father, we thank you. We thank you for that. We thank you for that. I want us to ask the Lord to impress something upon our hearts, that very thing that I just mentioned, that no matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult life is, no matter how broken things are around us, no matter even how sick we become, in the end, we win, we win, we win. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.